As many of you know, I am a uh, huge fan of uh, J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. I have had on my calendar uh, for most of the year uh, when The Hobbit comes out in December, and I'm, I'm going to be there, and I'm planning on weeping when it's done because it's the last installment the third in the series, and we should wish we could raise Tolkien from the dead so he could write some more good scripts that Hollywood could use because they are sorely lacking in those, but he provides some really great ones. And uh, so, big fan of, uh, of, of, of Tolkien. In fact, I said to Jennifer before the service last night, I said, you know, this is a great sermon because in this one sermon, I quote both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. So that's pretty exciting for me. Uh, Lewis is yet to come. Hang in there. But to to talk about Tolkien and Lord of the Rings a moment, there's a scene in Lord of the Rings that uh, I want to just uh, tell you about. And if you've not seen it, I call you to repentance and to get right with God and to to, uh, check it out. But in the third third movie, there is, uh, this is The Return of the King, there, there is Aragorn, who is the long-exiled king. He is heir to the throne, but he has sort of lived in the backlands of, uh, of, of, of Middle-earth and has not uh, taken, um, what, initiative to, to become the king. Well, Lord Elrond confronts Aragorn and gives to him a sword of power. And as he gives him the sword of power, he says to him in very Lord Elrondish way, put aside the ranger, become who you were born to be. And it's like this big testosterone moment in the movie. And you're like, ah, right. And Aragorn apparently felt so, felt the same because he takes the sword and he goes on to become the great king. Hence the name, the return of the king. Are you enjoying our little series on justification? I have heard from many people that God has been really using this little series, so much so that we've actually decided to extend it another three weeks. And so we're going to keep talking about justification. There's so much that we can, that we can there's no lack of uh, things to study with it. And it just seems like the smile of God has been upon it. And so we're going to keep it going, all right? And this message today is another message in justification with a few more to come. Let's remind ourselves, what is justification? As we have already seen, it literally means to declare something just or to declare something righteous. And justification is the Christian doctrine of how God declares sinners just or the unrighteous righteous which we clearly are not righteous and that's part of the miracle of justification which god is allowed to do and uphold his righteousness because jesus took our guilt on the cross and we talked about this last week through imputation as jesus hung on the cross god took our guilt and placed it upon jesus moral account and by imputation, when we believe in Jesus, God takes, our, t- takes Jesus' righteousness and places it to our moral account and promises that from this point on, I will forever see you as a perfectly moral human being. 
You have complete righteousness, the very righteousness of God, of Jesus himself. And this is how Christianity answers the the heart cry of humanity. Mankind recognizes something is not right between me and God. My conscience tells me that something is not right between me and God. And all the religions of the world try to answer that heart cry. But all of them say, to do it, you've you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do that. Christianity comes along and says, it is not about our doings, it is about what Christ has done. His death in our place, his death for our sins. And so we stand, therefore, righteous in his eyes, not because we are righteous, but because he has declared us to be. And this is by his grace, it is through faith alone that we are justified. So justification is uh, itself wonderful, but justification by itself is not. Now that sounded a little confusing. Here's what I mean by that. We can look at justification in isolation, and there is so much there that is fantastic and wonderful, and we can continue our series in it. But if we ever view justification as being salvation by itself, or the only thing that I need, or all that God does in saving me, now I am totally missing the grander picture and how justification fits into the midst of it. And that is what I want to talk with us today about is this declaration of righteousness, this thing that God is doing, how does it relate to other things that God does to save us? And so I'd like to begin in Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Romans chapter 8, very well-known passage of scripture beginning in verse 29. Romans 8 verse 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, this verse is oftentimes, theologians call it, the golden chain. And uh, maybe you can see why they would call that, uh, call it that, is because God, uh, by the Holy Spirit, here lists several saving activities that God, do, that God does and links them together. So those that he has predestined, there is a link to the calling of God. And those that God calls, there is a link to the justification that God does. And those that God justifies, there is a link to glorification. A golden chain, each one of them, you could pull out the link and go, isn't that amazing link? Isn't calling amazing? Isn't glorification amazing? But if I keep the link out and I think that's all that salvation is, I am missing the fact that all of these things are what God does. So how does justification relate to three key other aspects of salvation? Namely, resurrection, Um, sanctification and regeneration. And in this, we're going to understand what it means to put aside the ranger and to become who we were born to be. So let's begin with resurrection. Resurrection. What is the tie-in between justification 
and resurrection. Here's what Paul says a few chapters earlier, Romans 4, verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, it being righteousness. So there we have imputed righteousness, justification. It will be counted, reckoned to us who believe in him, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. You see it there, right? There is a link between resurrection and justification. But wait a second, what's the link? Like how do those two things come together? Most of the time when we think about resurrection, and this would be Easter, or really every Sunday is the Lord's Day, we typically celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as God's victory over death, right? And so we sing songs at Easter about this, we celebrate it, and indeed that is true. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the Bible says that we were raised from the dead, that he, if he lives, we live as well. And so we should celebrate that, and we do. But this is tying in resurrection, not to the conquering of death or to eternal life, but rather to justification, which on the surface is a little puzzling. Like I, what is declared righteous before God, Jesus raised from the dead. How do those two come together? How many of you like to multitask? Okay. Got some multitaskers here. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a multitasker. I I like the feeling that as I'm doing one thing, I'm accomplishing two or three other things at the same time. So, for example, how many of you like to uh, make phone calls while you're driving? Yeah, I like to do that, right? Because like, I've got to drive from point A to point B. And if I'm thinking in my mind, you know, my mom would love to hear from me. Or I've got, you know, this staff person that I need to call. Or there's a church member that would... I like to, I like to be able to think that I'm, I'm sort of doing two things, two things at once. It feels good, doesn't it? To multitask. How many of you check your email during church? Mm-hmm. Now that would be unholy multitasking, just to be clear. And I would not recommend doing that. But the impulse behind it is what I'm talking about. The desire that while I am doing one thing, I am actually at the same time accomplishing another thing. That's called multitasking. And we find in Scripture that God is the great multitasker. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because right now he is uh, spinning some planets around a sun in our solar system. And uh, he's spinning a few solar systems around our solar system in a galaxy, the Milky Way. And there's like billions, trillions of galaxies, all of these things that are going on simultaneously. And at the same time, he is nourishing this earth with sun and with rain and food for uh, plants and animals and people. And you just look at what God is doing At the same time, he is an amazing multitasker. And when it comes to redemption, oftentimes when God is doing one saving activity, he is simultaneously accomplishing multiple things. The clearest example of this is the cross. We look at the cross and we say, on the cross, Jesus was dying for our sins. And indeed he was. We look at the cross and we say that God was uh, 
fulfilling prophecy, and indeed he was. In fact, if we were just to begin to think about all the things that God did on the cross, fulfilling prophecy, exacting justice, displaying his mercy, fulfilling the law, unveiling his love, glorifying the Son, conquering Satan, redeeming sinners, and making a way for any sinner who believes to have eternal life. All of that and many other things in one singular event, multiple layers of meaning, multiple uh, purposes being accomplished. God is a great multitasker. And when we look at the resurrection, we can look at it singularly and say it is about Jesus conquering death for us. That is true. But it is also for our justification. How is that also true? Let's go back in the story, okay? Let's go back to Calvary. Let's go back to when Jesus was hanging on that cross. The Bible says at noon, the sky grew black. And through imputation, which we studied last week, from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, God took our guilt, our sins, and placed them upon Jesus' moral psychological, spiritual account and treated Jesus as if he was the liar, as if he was the adulterer, as if he was the thief and the blasphemer. He treated him like he was us. And the Bible says the wrath of God was poured down upon Jesus. So at three o'clock or somewhere before that, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was the answer to that question? Because God had declared him legally guilty and was treating him as a sinner. And at three o'clock, Jesus died. He died for our sins. Now, let's just say that was the last thing that we knew. Let's say that there was no resurrection that we knew about. The last thing we knew was God the Father declaring Jesus to be a sinner. How would you and I have any confidence at all that Jesus' death actually accomplished our salvation or that the Father had actually accepted the sacrifice of Jesus or that Jesus' worth and value was a payment sufficient to ransom sinners from their sins? How would we know any of that if the last thing we knew was the Father declaring the Son guilty? Now, if you're God, what do you do in order to communicate to mankind that Jesus' death was sufficient payment for the sins of of the world? That Jesus' death means that he is a savior. That all the promises that were made about him, messianic in the Old Testament, were accomplished in Jesus. What do you do in order to say something about Jesus? Now, He could have arranged the stars in the sky and it said his payment was enough. And we'd look up in the sky and go, well, I guess his payment was enough. Or he could have written it on a mountain range somewhere, right? And we'd all go to the mountain range and light candles and think, okay, his payment was enough. But this is what God decided to do. In order to communicate to all of us that that payment was sufficient and that Jesus is actually a savior, 
With power that he alone has, he reached down into that cold grave and he raised Jesus back from the dead. To to gain victory over death? Yes. But he's multitasking. He did it for our justification. He did it to declare that yes, Jesus was guilty on the cross, but I am raising him from the dead to let you know that he is guilty no more. He is holy, he is righteous, and he will be the righteous son of God forever. He is my son. Now, you maybe think you can come up with a better way to say that, but that's how God did it, and I doubt you can. Okay? He was raised for our justification to communicate something to each one of us that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior of the world. The resurrection says that. Very, very poignantly. In fact, we could call it the justification of Jesus. In justification, God declares us righteous. In the resurrection, God the Father declared the Son righteous. It was his justification. And Jesus did rise from the dead. To look at it this way, you could say, well, what if, what if, what if uh, archaeologists find some sarcophagus somewhere and it's got bones in it and there's a sign on the side of it and it says, herein lies the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, the one Pilate killed on the cross. What would that do to the Christian faith? Obviously, the whole thing collapses. But one of the reasons it collapses is... Why would I put my faith in some guy that claimed to be a savior if he's still dead? The resurrection says something, doesn't it? Now, I told you I was going to quote Tolkien and Lewis. Here's the Lewis quote. And by the way, our church history month, our weekend is coming at the end of this month. And I am planning on doing C.S. Lewis as uh, our biographical message this, uh, this coming, uh, oh, it's a future weekend but I hope you start getting excited about that. I am. So C.S. Lewis wrote Chronicles of Narnia, probably his most famous uh, writings. And many of you, I'm sure, know that. And if, after you repent of not seeing Lord of the Rings, you should repent and read the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the most famous of those books. And in that book, there is the story of four children who make their way into this... Uh, this uh, alternate world called Narnia. Well, one of them, Edmund, betrays the other three. And the white witch of that land lays claim to Edmund's life and says he is a traitor and I own him and he must die for what he has done. Well, also in the story is the great lion Aslan, right? And Aslan says, I will die in the place of the boy Edmund. Well, the white witch is totally ecstatic about this because she doesn't really care about Edmund. But the opportunity to kill Aslan, her great enemy for uh, all of time, was too wonderful for her to believe. And so she takes the deal. Aslan voluntarily goes to the stone table. And on the stone table, they shave him. The white witch plunges the knife into Aslan. Aslan dies. Well, after they do that... Her and her hordes go to make war with Narnia. But the two sisters, Lucy and Susan, 
make their way up to the table and they see the great lion that they loved dead there on the table. They're crying, they're sorrowful. They turn away to walk away and all of a sudden there's an earthquake and the stone table cracks and they look back at the stone table and Aslan's gone. And they rush to see what's going on. What could have happened? Where is he? What's going on here? And all of a sudden into the picture comes Aslan, and he is now alive. And that's another testosterone moment right there. As the great lion, show, you can tell what kind of movies I like, the great lion shows up back on the scene, and they're like, oh, what, what, how, why, why, what has happened? And this is what Aslan says about his own resurrection. It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes only back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back in the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. How did Susan and Lucy know That Aslan's death paid the penalty for Edmund's treachery. Well, the clearest way they could know was that Aslan was alive, right? And that's what resurrection does. It is supernatural. It is a statement that only God can make. And it is intended to reassure us that we are righteous in the eyes of God. And that Jesus is forever righteous raised for our justification. Isn't that wonderful? Amen? Third service? (laughs) Amen. Now, let's continue to explore this. It would be a mistake for us to think that justification is the sum of salvation. And uh, while it is wonderful... It is not the only thing that God is doing, and we should be glad that it is not the only thing that God is doing, because we actually want God to do a lot more than justify us. Now, an analogy for this, and it's not a perfect analogy, but if you think about the news this last week, many of you probably heard about uh, what happened in Dallas and the Ebola virus, right? And this guy that flew from West Africa to Dallas, he goes to the hospital in Dallas. The hospital looks at him and they say, we think you're fine. They sign a release form for him. He goes back to his apartment and those symptoms all begin to just well up in him. They take him back. And as I understand it, he's in critical condition today. It would be right for us to pray for him. This analogy is not perfect, but when that guy went to the hospital, what did he need? You could say he needed somebody to say that he had a clean bill of health. And you know what? It's great when you go to the hospital and they tell you that you have a clean bill of health. But what he actually needed was he needed that virus to be dealt with, didn't he? And them telling him that he was healthy didn't actually fix the virus problem. And spiritually speaking, it is great that God declares that we are healthy. It's great that God says that we are righteous. But here we are still suffering from what? All of the painful symptoms of our sin. All of us, have, we have a virus of sorts. And by the way, the mortality rate is 100% with what we got. God, can you do something about that? God, can you do something about my 
the, the painful experience that I have dealing with all of these sins? Can you do something about my porn problem? Can you do something about my mouth? Can you do something about my mind? Can you do something about my thieving? Can you do something about my damaging words, my tongue? God, do you, are you just going to declare me righteous and I go on living in the pain of being a sinner? Or do you want to take care of that too? And wonderfully, we find that God's plan is not simply to declare us righteous, but to make us righteous. To deal with our heart problem. And this is known as new birth or regeneration. Let's go back to Romans 8, 29. I read it earlier. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. What does that mean? It means that in eternity past, when God purposed all of this stuff in salvation, that part of what he was doing is he purposed to make us into the likeness of Jesus, to make us Jesus juniors, to conform who we are to the very likeness of Christ, which is not physical, but is internal. It is your heart. It is your motives. It is your priorities. It is your loves. It is the the intents of your life, your missions, and all of that. God wants to change everything that we are. And he does it through the miracle of regeneration. But we rightly ask the question, how does he do that? Okay, does he quarantine us? Does he give us uh, antibiotics of some kind, spiritual antibiotics? How does God not just declare us righteous, but actually deal with the heart issue? This is how Jesus says that he does it. John 3, talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him in the night. He's all confused about spiritual realities. Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. Nicodemus is confused, if you remember in the story, and he goes like, what are you talking about born again? Do I have to go back like into my mom and come out again? Which is one of the like most bizarre comments in the whole Bible, right? And Jesus is like, you're a teacher of Israel and that's as good as you can come up with? with what it means to be born again? This is what Paul writes in Titus chapter 3. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What Jesus calls born again, Paul calls regeneration, also called new birth. What is it? Regeneration is a work of God that... He does within the heart of the sinner where he actually hits the restart reboot button. He doesn't just come in and do some remodeling. This is an entire demolition and restoration project in the human heart whereby God births a new nature in the Christian. A new mind, a new heart. Old Testament prophecy, he takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. He creates within us spiritually a whole new life, a whole new power, a whole new reign. Sin 
up to the point of faith, ruled and reigned exclusively. But now there is a whole new power that has dethroned sin in the human heart. It is new birth. And I'm tying this in with the second thing, which is sanctification. And we see that in this verse uh, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the first step is God makes us new inside. The next step is here, sanctification, renewal by the Holy Spirit. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Who is the one that is doing these things? God is doing this in us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Love this verse. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. This is the, the, the Galatians. Um, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I didn't quote that right. I missed this up in the last service too. And I didn't look it up between services. I am crucified with Christ. Uh, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. See those old Awana verses, they come back at just the right time. (laughs) And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who gave his life for me. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. My dear friend, on the main level or in the balcony, who I can't see, I don't have to know you personally to know That if you are a believer in Jesus, God's will for you is to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, for you to be sanctified. And all sanctified means is holified. To be set apart, to be made righteous in the practical course of living my life. It is the transformation of me, boots on the ground, where the rubber meets the road, in the, you know, on, the, the, on street level. you got all these little phrases like that. It is, it's life that God is changing me in the day-to-day of who I am and is setting me free from the bondages of sin. And what an encouragement that ought to be for us, Right? You might be here and you've, even as a Christian, we have these things we drag into our, into our life, habits from the past, sins of, of uh, obsession from the past. And when I become a Christian to realize that I am not simply just being declared righteous and you suffer along in your little Ebola stuff, but that God wants to set us free from everything that sin has corrupted within us. And to make us actually new people, totally different people than we were prior to our faith in Christ. Is that encouraging to you? Encouraging to me. What does that look like? It looks like obedience. It looks like the priorities of Jesus increasingly becoming my priorities. It looks like the values and the loves that Jesus had increasingly are being the loves and passions and of my own life. I am becoming a, an entirely different person than I was. And as a Christian, I want that. As a non-Christian, if you're an unbeliever right now, you're going, let's get out of here now. I like who I am. 
When a sinner realizes that he's a sinner, he doesn't like who he is. He longs for righteousness, and God provides it. He is changing us. I like how J.C. Ryle uh, says it. When people talk of, uh, regarding sanctification, you know, some people think, I just got to go to the right conference, or if I have this experience, and all of a sudden I'm going to be this great, godly, wonderful person. No, you're not. And Ryle says that here. When people talk of having received such a blessing and of having found the higher life after hearing some earnest advocate of holiness by faith and self-consecration, while their families and friends see no improvement and no increased sanctity in their daily tempers and behavior, immense harm is done to the cause of Christ. True holiness, we surely ought to remember, does not consist merely of inward sensations and impressions. It is much more than tears and sighs and bodily excitement and a quickened pulse and a passionate feeling of attachment to our favorite preachers and our own religious party and a readiness to quarrel with everyone who does not agree with us. It is something of the image of Christ which can be seen and observed by others in our private life and habits and character and doings. If you want to know if you're sanctified, talk to somebody who knows you, lives with you, sees you. Is there daily righteousness? This is what God is purposing to do. I like this graph from Wayne Grudem. I'm going to put it up here right now. And now all the engineers in the room are finally excited, right? Ah, graph. That's Enough of this literature garbage. Give me a chart. Okay, here's your chart. This will help. And I think it's a great picture of what we're talking about here. What is sanctification? How does God go about working this change? You'll see here, the bottom level here, this is, this is life before Christ. This is me as I naturally am. I am born a sinner. And as, as a sinner, as a non-Christian, I, I have my ups and downs. I, I help old ladies across the street. I take cookies to the neighbor. I do a nice thing here, but I also do some other things. But it doesn't matter because even the good things that I do merit no favor with God. I still go to hell. What do I need? I need to trust in Christ. I need to believe. And that is what that conversion is. And all of a sudden, when I do that, I step into a whole new realm. A realm where I am declared righteous by God. And I increasingly grow in this righteousness in the day-to-day of life. And yes, notice that there are some ups and downs. I have days where I look like Jesus. I have days where I look like Satan. But I am like a good stock up and to the right. I am generally, increasingly, overall, becoming somebody that I was not before. I am becoming sanctified, righteous in the day-to-day of life. Do I ever achieve perfection in this life? No, I do not. But when I die, the Bible says that we shed this body of sin. And we are given a whole new body, now with no sin nature. And we live in perfect holiness and righteousness forever. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Okay. Now, I want you to look at this chart and to ask yourself, where am I on it? Like, if I was to give you a little laser pointer... Say, okay, you, put the dot on where you are on this chart. Now, if you say, I'm actually, I think I'm, I'm actually in the, on the, in the basement. What should I do? Believe in Jesus and be saved. Turn from your sins, trust in what Christ has done on the cross, and receive 
a declaration of righteousness known as justification from God and the gift of eternal life. That's what you need to do. Now, if you're a Christian already here and you look and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of, this week I would say I'm on an up. Maybe the person next to you says I'm kind of on a down. And we can kind of wonder, you know, am I saved, am I not? I don't know. By the ebbs and flows of our spiritual life. But the big question is, am I, am I changing? And it might be feeble, it might be small, but am I changing and do I desire that? I think I'm kind of in this middle section. Now, some of you say, I think I'm in the upper section. (laughs) Are you dead? (laughs) And if so, who wheeled you in here today and propped you up to make you look like you're alive? Because until death, there ain't any of us that's perfect. But what a helpful chart. Where am I? And to see what God is doing in my life. What an encouragement that is. And to realize that God is doing something. And to see in those ups and downs the explanation for trials and troubles and discipline and things that God brings into our life to make us holy. You say, the only thing that makes me holy is when wonderful things happen to me. Actually, it tends to be the troubles and the discouragements through which God purges our hearts of the things that sin would want. And if you're in a time of pain right now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It means that he is committed to forming in you the blessed likeness of his son. Embrace it. Embrace it. Grudem goes on to give this chart. I think it's a helpful one. Comparing and contrasting justification and sanctification. Justification is my legal standing before God. Sanctification is my internal condition. Justification is a moment in time. It is instantaneous. I was not righteous. God declares me righteous by faith. Sanctification is progressive. It's continuous. It's ongoing for the rest of my life. Justification is entirely God's work. Sanctification is something that we cooperate with God. God doesn't read the Bible for you. God doesn't pray for you. God doesn't sacrifice. Well, he does sacrifice for you, but... He doesn't do that uh, for you. This is things that we do. And as we serve the Lord, and as we obey, and as we use the means of grace, God grows us into the likeness of Christ. In justification, we are perfect. If you're a Christian right now, in the eyes of God, he goes, totally perfect. We are perfect in this life. Declared so. Sanctification is about the ongoing process of becoming less imperfect. (laughs) In this life. So, what is the organic connection between these two? Justification, sanctification. I had a staff member this week who said, Sanctification has to feed off of justification. I think that's true. Sanctification eats justification for breakfast. You say, What do you mean by that? I mean that when I wake up in the morning and I think about God's grace to me, when I think about Jesus' sacrifice for me, When I realized that there was nothing in me that endeared me to God and God go, he's so cute, he's so wonderful, I think I'll save him. When I understand the grace of God to me to declare me righteous, I leave the front door of my house with a whole new desire to live in a manner that's pleasing to God and to realize that it was sin that put Jesus on the cross. I walk out the front door, I don't want to sin. Does that mean I'm going to? Probably. But my heart's desire is not to do that. 
So don't eat Cheerios and don't eat Wheaties. Eat justification for breakfast. Somebody tweet that right now. (laughs) All right. One final illustration here. I read a great one, and it fits into my life right now. We have a 16-month-old daughter, which is totally fantastic because it's like having a pet parrot. (laughs) Whatever we do, whatever we say, she will parrot it back to us, okay? Which is totally adorable, of course. So we'll, for example, we'll point to a cow in a book. And for a long time, we've been going, moo, moo. Well, she sort of picked up on it. So we point to a cow, and we say, what does the cow say? And she goes, moo. We point to a horse. What does a horse say? She goes, nay, nay. We point to a dog. What's the dog say? (laughs) You see how this goes. I've been doing this elephant impersonation, which I am not going to do for you, but I do this elephant (laughs) impersonation, and I raise my arm like this when I do it. So whenever we point to an elephant in the book, she goes. It's like having a pet parrot in the house. It's fantastic. Now, does she do this because she actually understands the organic connection between an animal, cow, and the sound moo? No. Not yet. She sees that every time she says moo, when we point to a cow, we go, yay, like this. And she picks up that from us and she will a thousand other things which is why one reason children resemble their parents so much the little idiosyncrasies the little turns of a phrase the little ways of doing things not perfectly and um, all but there's a lot of resemblance there is that only Because of nurture. And we say to that, no. Because our daughter has within her our very nature, doesn't she? We birthed her. She has a little bit of us actually in her. And we need to understand how God makes us resemble Christ by giving to us a little bit of his actual nature, the spirit of Christ within us. And one writer says it this way, in like manner we may carefully copy the traits of Christ's character, looking at him outside of us as a painter looks at his mode. We may do better still. We may, by prayer and the reading of the word, live daily in his company, and receive the impress of his influence. But if our imitation of him is to be the deepest and most thorough, something more is necessary. He must be in us, as the mother is in her child, having communicated his own nature to us in the new birth. That's what God has done. Justification declares us righteous. Regeneration Births a new nature in us. Sanctification 
lives that nature out increasingly like Jesus himself, our blessed and resurrected Savior. Put aside the ranger and become who you were born again to be. More on justification next week. Let's stand for prayer.